Oh, gosh. Travel is a spiritual experience. Photographing is a spiritual experience. I guess I should say all of life is spiritual to me. There's nothing that is not. (laughs) I'm one of these people who I know intimately that spirit is is here. It's palpable. And everything I do and experience is a manifestation of that. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired. And please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am just delighted to welcome Denise Gallagher to the My Fourth Act podcast. Denise is an artist, an occupational therapist, a marvelous photographer, and perhaps most importantly, a seeker and an explorer. She lives in Fairfield, Iowa, one of the most unusual small towns in the United States, and a magnet for practitioners of uh, transcendental meditation. Denise has fashioned a life that includes extended travel around the world, not to go sightseeing, but to explore life. Last November, at the height of the COVID pandemic in the United States, Denise left to go to Croatia for four months and explore a little more. I know we're going to talk about all of this, so welcome, Denise. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much, Akeem. I'm really happy to be here. Likewise. So. And I in every conversation, I, I like to go start with what our dreams and aspirations were when we were younger, because sometimes they come true and sometimes they don't. Who did young Denise want to be when she grew up, or did she have thoughts of who she wanted to be? Well, my first response to that, Akeem, is that I really didn't want to grow up. You know, I adults that I saw in my life did not look real happy. And so I didn't really want that life. And I remember very clearly telling my dad I didn't want to grow up. But, you know, after a time, I started to think, okay, I want to understand what makes people do what they do, what makes them tick. And I realized that I had a sick mother growing up. And Mm -hmm. so probably my desire not to grow up had a lot to do with the fact that I didn't get much playtime. I wanted to be able to be free and to play. But as time went on, I started to think I want to be able to help people. And obviously there I was helping my mother. And oh, I would say by the time I was nine or 10, I knew that I would work in the field of social work, psychology. I also had some aspirations to be a lawyer who served poor people. But Mm. that was it. (laughs) I happen to know you alluded to this, that your mom had a terminal illness and I believe she passed when you were 11. That's right. And that time required you to do a lot of helping around the home because your mom couldn't. Uh, Can you give us a glimpse of what that was like? Oh gosh. And by the time I was seven, she started on dialysis and they told me at the time that she probably wouldn't live more than three years. Mm -hmm. So you have to imagine a seven-year-old hearing that. Of course, I wanted to negotiate with God. It was like, no, not my mother. 
But part of me was very afraid. I was a good Catholic girl. And of course, as a child, we all think that we are responsible for the health and happiness of the people that we love, especially our parents. So I took it on myself to be as good as possible and as quiet as possible and study hard and make her proud of me with the hope that I could keep her alive. Obviously, it was a huge loss. She died when I had just, like you said, turned 11. I still had a good deal of magical thinking at that point. You know, things that I had to unravel as I got older. Well, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking of the word lose. And you talk about the loss. But I'm also thinking thinking about what we find on the other side. And we'll spend a good chunk of our conversation looking at your life right now, which in my mind is a life of exploration and great adventure that not everybody has. And it's kind of cool to know, and I don't mean cool in an exciting way, that it started with a loss as a child. My sense of you as an adult is that you juggled concurrently two identities. You worked as an occupational therapist and you were always an artist in in different ways and different facets. Now, juggling two things, many artists do that. But if you think of those 20, 30 years of your life and think of what are some moments that might stand out where you go, yeah, this is why I fashioned this life for myself. But to everything that's light, there tends to be a dark side, right? What would some of the challenges or frustrations of fashioning that sort of life? So what, what jumps out in your mind as I ask this question? So my idea was, is that I was not going to work full time ever so that I could do my artwork. So it's always been that balancing act. And uh, I went back to school to be an occupational therapist because honestly, it was a way to support my art passion. It was much less draining than teaching. I could work with small groups. And, you know, I initially for the first 13 years as an OT, I worked in psychiatric settings. So I could use a lot of artwork and, you know, I love all sorts of movement and creative expressions and singing. So I did all of that with my patients. Treating patients is hugely, hugely fulfilling and also stressful. (laughs) You know, I mean, I love the work, especially when I would get referrals for people who weren't getting better. You know, they had maybe had all kinds of therapy and had hit an obstacle and a standstill. And I would see them and they would make breakthroughs. So a lot of satisfaction in my work. And working in a hospital, I was monitored for about 15 years for my efficiency. I mean, if you wonder, you know, how your Medicare dollars are being spent, you know, the doctors and nurses and therapists, we get pinched, you know, to be as efficient as possible. And so I was always feeling that I could never measure up. So I, that was the story. That was when you say, how did I know at what point, you know, there's the downside. That was the downside. Measuring efficiency of your work in a hospital feels like insane to me, <laughs> just as you were describing it. But you alluded to, and I said this introduction, you know, you live in Fairfield, Iowa, small town, 
what's unusual about it is it has attracted people from all of the country, actually all over the world who are committed meditators. So you're in, a, you're in this town, small rural Iowa, where lots and lots of people meditate. It's an almost mythical place. I've never been, but I've heard about Fairfield. So can you give us a glimpse of how do you, what's it like to be in a town where people meditate? Like, do you experience that? Um, how does that manifest? Or how does Fairfield feel different from other small towns like it? You know, I can I can tell you the contrast was enormous coming from Philadelphia to Fairfield. You know, my shoulders just started to sink dramatically. Mm-hmm. I wasn't locking my house. I wasn't afraid. I felt as if I was in liquid love. The contrast is very strong in the beginning, and especially when you're meditating in groups. Well, they have this idea that when you you put a thought out there, you just let it go. You have a desire, you let it go, but then you see that it manifests. And that was happening a lot, especially my first year. And so now it's just sort of normal. You get to the place you go, oh, there's a, a great softness here. And as you said, I mean, people do come and it's many, many spiritual teachers come through here. So for me, it was just delightful to have a place that I didn't have to explain a lot. You know, I mean, the foundation of one fifth of the town, it's a spiritual foundation. And so mm. it may not be there's that you're in the, the very midst of the movement. The TM movement has various degrees of people's engagement. I live in a house, you know, I have a regular job, but there's many people who live on the campus and who are much more focused on their program. And that's a high priority for them. And I say, that's great, but it's just, it's very soft. And people who come from out of town, they say, oh, there's something special here. People smile, you know, they can tell that everybody looks really healthy and the meditators are freely hugging each other, especially now, since we're not as worried about COVID. (laughs) (laughs) It's been an endless fascination for me, just how people experience this town. And also because I work with non-meditators for the 23 years that I worked at the local hospital, I would always ask the local people, how do you experience the meditators and how is this for you? And, you know, really over time, it's gotten very smooth and very easy. I think in the beginning, there was a little bit of a learning curve as everybody was getting used to each other. But yeah, I don't know what else to say other than you've got to come and visit. (laughs) Really. You you use this phrase, liquid love, which jumped out at me. Describe to our listeners what liquid love feels like for you. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I was going to the Golden Domes. If you any of your listeners Google Fairfield, Iowa, you'll see that there's two huge geodesic domes and one for the men, one for the women. It's a place where you get very, very settled and it's just intensely blissful and sweet. We have these thick foam mattresses. And when you walk on these, it's obviously very soft. And I would look around the room and I just would feel this vibration that was so supportive and so palpable to me physically that I experienced that as liquid love. <laughs> it, was, it was quite 
quite dramatic for me in the first the first year or so. I know that at one point in your life, you received some clear messages about new things to look at and investigate for yourself. You share that with me, and I loved that because I, I've had very similar experiences where the messages were so clear, and then the question always is, do I listen or do I ignore? So for our listeners, because you do some very cool stuff right now that you weren't doing before you got these messages, what's the message you received? How did it manifest? And then we'll talk about what happened after the messages. I started exploring photography. I left behind just painting. So I guess it was about 2009. I was looking at this particular photographer, a Danish photographer who was running photography workshops in Tuscany. So you have to imagine, I'm considering this and we're having a rosary. This is right around Christmas and we're having a Christmas rosary. And I'm asking Mary, okay, what do you think I should do about next year? You know, what, what do you feel? I'm, I'm just really focused on what does this year have in store for me? I mean, I have really got to the limit of a great deal of st- stress in my job. I could feel, you know, I'm coming home late, getting 20 minute lunches, feeling go, go, go all the time. I wanted something different. And at that point I was about 55. So the clear message came back to me. She said, quit your job. She said, go to Italy, study with Hans Cruz, and I will take care of the rest. I will take care of the details. And I remember after that rosary, I spoke to my two friends and I was in tears. I said, I got this message. I'm sorry. And they said to me, Don't be afraid. Don't ever let money get in the way of you following what you're supposed to do. No matter if you lose everything, we will be there for you. You can stay in our, you know, we have a guest house in the back. You have so many friends who will support you. Don't ever be afraid and think that money is an obstacle. Because of the insecurities in my childhood, I had really had that real dependence on that regular paycheck. So for me to break free and to go away, I went away for seven months. (laughs) I went for seven months in 2013. And I truly felt the Divine Mother right there with me, you know, and it's for those of you who don't have that belief system, you could replace it with just a feeling that you're safe, a feeling that you're at home everywhere. And that was the sense I had. I mean, I just felt that everyone was someone who could be a friend. And time and time again, that was reinforced. Yeah, that was it. And truly, I followed that, that, what shall I say, that invitation from the Divine Mother, and I'll take care of the details. And she did. A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the, the My Fourth Act Mastermind Groups, where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. Just for our listeners, I want to say, if this 
if you believe in messages from the Divine Mother, what Denise just said makes perfect sense. If you don't, you might go, wow, this is a little woo-woo for me. Uh, from my own life, I just want to share without telling the entire story. At one point, I was in Sedona, a very spiritual place, and I, I got a very clear message that I was to live in a white house on an island in the Caribbean for a while. Six months later, that's what I did for a year. Like you, I left my job to do that. We all receive messages all the time that we don't hear because you use the phrase, we're go, go, go. I had to chuckle because even in Fairfield, Iowa, apparently you can do go, go, go. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> I want to deconstruct the seven month journey a little more. Because when, when I hear you say, oh, well, I, I, I went for seven months, what are some of the physical places you went to? Give us a sense of how far, just physically, countries, cities, where did you go in those seven months? So I didn't do Asia. I didn't do Africa. I did fly all the way around the world. But I would say primarily in that point, it was, it was southern, southern Europe. That was seven months. I, I, in 2016, I did a nine-month trip. So I'm trying to, to pull those two apart. I think, oh, let's see. In 2013, I also did go to, went to Scandinavia, went up to Norway. And I was in Denmark and, yeah. So we, we gather that, Denise, you fashion a life where you go on these long I'm going to call them journeys, seven months. There's a nine-month one coming up. We're going to talk about the one that happened to the pandemic in a moment. Now, we, we, we might be listening to you and somebody might think, well, this is just a wealthy woman from Fairfield, Iowa. She's inherited a lot of money. She can just run around the world and do her thing. Yeah, easy if you have a lot of money in your bank account. What would you say to those folks? <laughs> <laughs> I'd say... Talk to me. <laughs> That's not my reality. I'm not a wealthy person. I actually never inherited any money <laughs> from my family, and no one has ever helped me. So I've pretty much been single. I have a partner now, but I'm not in a situation that you would you would think. How the heck does she do this? She's got to have money. I have a very simple, modest home, and I bought it back in 1990 when I was married. I had a Oh, a brief marriage. And at that point, it made sense for us to buy a house. And it was $27,500. Okay. Mm-hmm. I still have that house. I paid it off in 2001. And it's a sweet little cottage. It's maybe a little bit over a thousand square feet, but every inch of it is an artist's space. So I have my house. It's paid off. I, I have a, I've always bought used cars. I pay them off. And then when they're pretty much done for, then I get another used car. I'm happy to just have, you know, an older car. To be honest, Akim, is that I prioritize my freedom and my capacity to travel. It's always a balancing act for me, like how much needs to be done. I mean, if you were to see you look around my house, I don't have a dishwasher. I don't have a clothes washer. I don't. I have an extremely simple life, you know, so that has to be important to you. I have a very rich and beautiful life, but I don't own what a lot of people feel that they 
need to have. I don't have those things. And I'm always looking towards how can I balance having energy for my art and having money to be able to, to travel really. And my health. I put a lot of money into my own personal growth. I've worked many, many years with Trillium Awakening. So these are really my priorities, travel and my health and my, my own evolution. But, you know, if it's important, then you prioritize it. That's all I say. And I use frequent flyer miles. <laughs> so I heard simplicity. I heard freedom. I heard travel. And I'm stressing these three words because I would bet you a lot of money that every single listener we have aspires to all of those things. My sense is that your travel, and I alluded to this introduction, isn't so much about seeing every famous art artifact along the way. There, there's a deeper purpose to your travel, to these long travels. I see you as a spiritual seeker and as a spiritual dimension to your travels. Can you give us an example of what that might look like and feel like? I am kind of purpose-driven. I have a very strong sense of my purpose and my mission. The gifts that I feel like I've had in my life, I want to share them. And I do share them through imagery. And in 2313 specifically, my motivation had a lot to do with separating myself from the constraints of time, being time-bound, being time-driven, I remember I was working with a chiropractor. He was using body talk. And I said, why am I so tired all the time? He said, you're always feeling as if there's never enough time. You're always feeling you're not able to catch up. And I thought, oh, that's it. I wanted to change my relationship with time. I wanted to understand what it would be like to not have a watch and just go at my own pace. And of course, everybody wants that when they go on a vacation. I wanted that for an extended amount of time. So it became real to me. How could time actually stretch out, stretch out so that I didn't feel a pressure about it was eroding my health. The efficiency studies really eroded me in that sense of just always feeling behind. I couldn't catch up. <laughs> so the other aspect is that I really, living in Fairfield, everything was familiar and easy and predictable in a great extent. I knew, obviously, there's a whole chunk of my life that was not predictable, but many aspects of it, I felt, okay, I got this down. And I'm, I'm one who wants to challenge myself spiritually. I felt like, okay, you're kind of complacent here. You need to see when the rubber meets the road, <laughs> are you really able to stay grounded? Do you still feel that trust? And as I said, I was really being asked by the Divine Mother to let go. I was the one who wanted to have control. Mm -hmm. I mean, here I had this childhood of everything out of control. I was very much like, I want to make sure I got all my ducks in a row. 2013 was like, how can I start to let go and not know? I mean, I actually experienced waking up in the morning and not knowing which direction I would turn the car. I'm not sure where I'm going to go. Or I go walking, I go, I'm not sure. And it was always an exploration of letting go. Can I just 
trust and be in the moment. You know, we all get this idea, oh, what is it to be in the moment? I truly wanted to experience that. I wanted to understand what what it looked like for me to trust my intuition. And I feel like the divine talks to me through my intuition. What would that be like to just really be in that flow, trusting and my intuition, I feel it through my body. So my body would say yes or no. And that was how I made decisions. And, And it was, to be honest, I come back, you know, I came back after that trip and I would talk about it and people would say, how was it? And I would start to cry because I felt I really um, had that sense of of flow and of mm-hmm. whole recalibration spiritually. So I'm going to push you a little bit. I love your story because I had the exact same experience. You know, you know, I lived in Tobago for a year. I became a windsurfer. Time seemed to stand still there. So I can know what that was like. And I know the daily experience of flow and waking up in the morning and not knowing what you're going to do that day and just finding out. How can we be in the moment when we're back in Fairfield or back in my case, Florida, in a more structured life? Because it sounds easy when we're traveling, you know, we're waking up, we do whatever we want. It's a wonderful gift, of course. But have you been able to translate that sense of being and bring it back to when you return to Fairfield? The more I experience what that is, the more it it just naturally, it happens. It's like a muscle. When you know that, then it's like, oh, am I back in that same mindset that I used to have? You have that awareness because you know the contrast. You know what it's like not to have it. When I travel, I nurture myself in ways that, I mean, I treat myself like a queen. I am ultimately caring for myself. And so that translates into when I come home, I want to take care of myself so beautifully, you know, because that's important. (laughs) And I know that if I take care of myself, I'm taking care of the world. (laughs) I want to jump to your most recent trip. And I want to set the stage. And if I get this wrong, please correct me. So my understanding is that in November of 2020, at the height of the pandemic, COVID pandemic in the United States, in the middle of an intense year, there there was an election. We had George Floyd's murder. We had Black Lives Matter. At the time when Americans were not allowed to go pretty much anywhere, you realized that Croatia a place that you love, let Americans in, and you knew that the COVID rate was really, really low there. And so November, you left this country and you ended up, I said four months, but I believe it's actually five months. You went to Croatia for five months. Talk us through your thinking process of going on this journey. I'm curious about what people said to you because I have a hunch some might have thought that was an insane thing to do. Just just paint the picture of the decision to leave at the height of a lot of stuff going on. Uh, You're right. (laughs) A lot of people (laughs) did think it was a little crazy, but oh gosh. You know what? I do want to go back a little bit to 2016 and 2017 because that set the stage for me going back to Croatia. I went in 2016 with the idea of giving back 
I really felt so full. And so I went to volunteer with the Syrian refugees in Greece. And I did that in October, November of 2016. And I needed to earn some more time in the Schengen zone. The Schengen zone is, is most of Europe. Turns mm -hmm. out that Croatia is not part of, at least at that point, not part of Schengen. I had recalled that my cousin had been in Rovine back in, oh gosh, when she was 16 years old. And I saw an Ibn when I was 16, we're about the same age. And I thought, I will go there one day. Okay, flash forward. And, and to Rovine, Rovine is a city in Croatia, let's just say that. Yes, I'm sorry. Rovine is right along the coast and in a part called Istria. And lo and behold, I go there with the idea I'm just going to be there for two weeks. And I arrive in this town of Rovine in Istria, which used to be under control of Italy. And I get off the bus and I see that everybody is speaking either Croatian or Italian. And since I had used to, to live in Italy, I was in heaven. <laughs> I knew I, I knew that, uh, you know, if God had created a town, it would have been that town for me personally. So I went and traveled. I actually went and did some volunteer work in Bali. I went that trip over to New Zealand and to Australia. And I thought, am I ready to come back? And I thought, no, no, I got to go back to Rovine. So I bet, went back for another two weeks. I left in 2017. And I promised myself that when I retired, I would go back there for at least three to six months. And so lo and behold, last year, 2020, around July, August, I finally decided I'm, I'm going to quit hospital work. Obviously, COVID was going on and I was in a bit of a funk. Then one day I, I happened upon the fact that I really, at that point, had no idea Croatia was open to Americans. Okay, so you have to imagine, I started thinking this is maybe September, October. I thought, can I do this? Okay, I've worked in a nursing home. I've worked in hospitals. I've worn masks. I've worn shields, all the protective equipment. And I thought, I know what it takes to be safe. I've done it. I wasn't able to socially distance. And I looked at the numbers in Istria particularly, and they were a green zone of all of Europe. They had the lowest COVID numbers. And so I thought, you know what? I can do this. I can get my PCR testing done at my job. I had been putting money aside to travel. I had decided to start taking my social security and, and still work. So all that money just went into my travel fund. And honestly, I had to really sit deep inside myself and meditate and pray. And I got to feeling that even if I were to get sick, would I be able to handle that? What if I were to die? Okay, how would that be? And honestly, Ahim, if I had not had enough experiences traveling mm -hmm. and knowing that I was always safe and protected. And, you know, I had a situation in Bali where I ended up going to the emergency room. Oh, this fellow who was my driver, he went with me. He held my hand. The doctor was just darling. The person at my B&B &B would wrap my leg and take me back and forth to the doctor. I knew that I had angels out there if I needed them. And I knew that because I had that experience. And I thought, okay, something happens in Croatia, I'll deal with it. It was a number of factors. It was me personally knowing that I could navigate it. I also saw that there was 
very few people flying. My girlfriend came from Sicily and she showed me images. There was nobody in the airports. And I thought, okay, okay, God, <laughs> you sort of opened this door for me. There's this, I see the path. And I explained all this to my friends and I just said, I don't mean to trigger you. I don't mean to worry you, but this is what I'm doing. My, I was married to a fellow from Yugoslavia, you know, and he said, oh, here you are doing just what you're not supposed to be doing. You're supposed to stay home. What are you doing? What are you thinking? And I just said, this is a very personal decision. And I, I know I can do this. So I did. Part of your travels, and, and, and I hope our listeners are hearing it, that you I'm afraid you sort of make it up as you go along and you make decisions. And I have a hunch that this trip sort of got longer the longer you stayed there as well. And because you are a really marvelous photographer, you generated an exquisite amount of exceptional beauty that you shared with the world via Facebook. Mm-hmm while you were in this somewhat sheltered place in Istria. Talk a little bit about um, what doing the photography means to you, what you love about it, why you share it. Oh, gosh. Travel is a spiritual experience. Photographing is a spiritual experience. I guess I should say all of life is spiritual to me. There's nothing that is not. (laughs) I'm one of these people who I know intimately that spirit is is here it's palpable and everything i do and experience is a manifestation of that i like to feel that imagery comes to me i i i go on a walk but i have no idea what i'm going to see and i sense it actually literally in my body when something it's like the light comes a certain way i see somebody standing or i see And I literally, I feel this excitement come through my body. And it's like, yes, I like to tell people my eyes are really 180 degrees and everything is sensing the beauty. Everything is sensing that there could be a moment that I want to register. And I do this actually, I'm in a state of of surrender. I'm in a state of receptivity. You know, it's a really blissful place for me to be. And then I want to share that in my images. I mean, people say, I feel the silence in your work. I feel there's an uplifting sense. There's a sense of just serenity. Time and time again, people would say, you have helped me get through this awful, awful winter of staying home. And people would say, I look forward every day to seeing your images. And I came to realize that sharing them on Facebook was my way to give back. I had the blessing to have the wherewithal and the money and the health and whatever it took to do it. I was giving back and hopefully uplifting everyone who saw the images. That's what it was about for me. (laughs) You know, what really strikes me, you talked about helping your mom. You were a helper and a healer in hospital and psychiatric places, but on, on the clock where people are tracking you and and you liberated yourself from the clock, right? Which is what these journeys are. And you're helping in, in some ways in a different way and in a deeper way, in a way that I can tell as a speaking comes from a deep place within you 
especially when you when you mentioned the word silence and bringing yourself and others back to the silence. Now I know you you have more journeys ahead of you. But based on what you know now, Denise, if you were to whisper some words of wisdom into the ears of younger Denise, what would you say to young Denise that you know now, after all these travels and everything you've learned? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. Well, you know, the first thought that comes to me is that the whole idea of, of original sin I took that seriously. I would tell young Denise, that's a bunch of BS. (laughs) I'm sure it served its purpose in some way, but I would say to young Denise, you are perfect and whole and lovable as you are. You don't need to do anything to be loved. You don't need to do anything to gain divine favor. You are absolutely a being of light. And you can relax. <laughs> you know, and I think because of having a sick mother, I did take responsibility. And I now take responsibility for myself. I don't take responsibility for anyone else. I don't have people who are depending on me. I'm not a caregiver. I take responsibility to stand up and show love to the fullest extent. You know, I would just say, relax and play. And life is to be lived and enjoyed and don't take it so seriously. Go out and and dare and risk and you can't fail. You are always surrounded. I mean, I've been fortunate to know that I, I do have, you know, a soul family here physically. I have a soul family on the other side. I feel a great deal of spiritual support. Uh, well, I will end with with the understanding that we're all part of a soul family, as you said. And if I go back to the message you received when you did the, the, the rosary, which is you will be taken care of. And our soul families take care of us. So thank you for reminding us of all of this. If any of our listeners are curious about your work and what you do and want to check you out, what's the best place to, to find you? Well, Hakeem, I would say there's two places. One is I, I do have a website, and that's www.denise-healer-artist.com. So the healer comes first. So just think Denise Healer Artist, or you could just plug in my name, Denise Gallagher, or you would find me. The other thing is I do want to mention is I am a Trillium Awakening teacher, and there's a, a lot of information about me on that website. and that's Trillium Awakening, all one word, dot org. And both of those sources will be on the myfourthact.com website, so people will be able to find it there. Thank you so much for just sharing so generously of yourself and the journey you've been on. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Akeem, truly. Bye Thank for you. now. Bye. <laughs> Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review. 
and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.